0: Welcome to a special edition of The World in 30 Minutes to mark the baptism of fire which 2020 has had with the killing of Qasem Soleimani, the leader of the Al-Quds force of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard at the beginning of the year, which has sent the Middle East into a state of geopolitical uncertainty and frenzy and is leading to a whole series of discussions about what this means for the future of that region, for the future of geopolitics and In order to make sense of that, I have an all-star cast. We managed to wrench Ellie Garamaya away from her constant commentary on the subject for half an hour to to help work out what it means for European future. She's Senior Policy Fellow, ECFR, and Deputy Head of the Middle East and North Africa Programme. Also from the MENA Programme is the Head of the MENA Programme, Julian Barnes-Dacey, who's joining us down the line from Brussels. And from Mallorca, we have Jeremy Shapiro, ECFR's Research Director. So on Friday morning... Many foreign policy analysts woke up to discover that the U.S. had killed Qasem Soleimani with a targeted drone strike near Baghdad airport. And this was seen, I think, by many in Iran as a a de facto declaration of war. and. Over the last few days, the situation has started escalating in Iraq, in the region. And to help us make sense of what's going on, what it means for the Iran nuclear deal, what it means for the future of the region and America's role within it, but above all, what it means for European foreign policy, we have this special podcast which we're going to put out at the beginning of the week rather than waiting for Friday. Ellie, why don't you kick off and talk to us about what the latest events are in Iran, how it's playing out in Iraq.
1: Sure, Mark. Well, if you're seeing the footage come out of Tehran and the rest of the country over the last few days, you're seeing essentially a sea of uh, mourners coming out into the streets as Hassan Soleimani's body has come back from Iraq. He was by no means a uh, you know black or white figure inside of the Iranian political establishment, but I do think that what we're seeing in terms of the crowds gathering, is that he was a very symbolically important figure, a popular figure both within the political establishment and he had a base within the streets as well. And the, the responses so far from government officials has been uncategorically seeing this as a declaration of war from the United States, being very clear that Iran will respond at a timing and location of its choosing. But also, I think another important message has been that Iran does not want a full-fledged military conflict with the United States, and also that it is still open to diplomacy as a way to resolve the conflict. We've had statements from both President Rouhani uh, to this slide, and also Iran made an announcement shortly Uh, you know, within days of the killing on on a day that it was scheduled uh, regarding its commitments to the nuclear deal, where it has taken what it says is the fifth and final step to reduce compliance. But importantly, it has said that it remains still part of the nuclear deal and that these measures are reversible if all parties can provide uh, what they vouch for under the agreement. So there's a lot of, I think, anger, in Iran at the American action, I think there will be some sort of a response. Now, it depends, you know, we we can't right now guess exactly when or where or how that response will come into play. But I do think that there will be a military response and we can go into what that might mean. But there's also clearly a a political response as well that's coming out of Iran. And that has much more to do with a, a more long term strategic win, I think, here for Iran in terms of the role of the United States in the region, particularly in Iraq.
0: So why don't we start with this question about the the responses? Because one of the things that happened almost immediately was an escalation on Twitter where Donald Trump talked about having identified 52 different targets, including some of cultural significance which uh, America could attack if there was an Iranian response. And the Iranian response by Twitter was to mention over 30 potential American targets. What kinds of targets do you think were on those two lists? Jeremy, do you know what was on Trump's list? Were you consulted? Obviously, no NATO allies would have been consulted because that would go against the the pattern of... uh, (laughs) <laughs> this intervention.
2: I think it would go against the pattern to even consult his own National Security Council. So I, I mean, I, I would guess that this list is largely fictional. You saw, I think, uh, Secretary Pompeo essentially come out and do one of those sort of non-denial denials of what the president said by basically sort of saying the president said he was going to attack cultural sites, but we're not going to do anything that's illegal. Without mentioning that it's illegal to attack cultural sites. And so that doesn't make any sense. You know, I mean, I think that this is sort of typical of Trump bluster. And I think, you know, we've had a problem for a long time with taking this stuff too seriously. The president doesn't have any idea what he's talking about. And so anything could come out, you know, it conceivably could have some relationship to reality. But I think in this case, it probably
0: doesn't. But what do you think he, they think they're doing? Because, you know, what we know about American strategy. Mark,
2: Mark, I've been through this with you many, many times during the Trump administration. And, and I think you have to accept. I know it goes against every grain of your body, but you have to accept it. There isn't a strategy They aren't interested in a strategy. The president, I mean, there are people within the administration, I'm sure, who are, but the president himself is someone who operates from the gut, who is more focused on his own sort of feeding his own ego and on his domestic political standing, he's not fundamentally interested in the Iran problem. He doesn't understand it. He doesn't care about it. And he doesn't want, need or have a strategy. He can do something today, which is an act of war. And he could do something tomorrow, which is an act of engagement uh, and the exact opposite. And for us to try to to look at any given incident and to say, oh, here's the trend. Here's the strategy. Here's what it's going to look for in the future. That's not the way the Trump administration works.
0: But there has been a strategy by the Trump administration, maybe not by Trump, of of trying to rewire the American foreign policy in the Middle East to create a situation where Iran was beyond the pale.
2: Sure. But the point is that you can't have a a Trump administration strategy that the president isn't part of. And what that means, as we've seen many, many times in the last years, yes, there are people in the Trump administration, probably Secretary Pompeo is one of them, who have this idea of a maximum pressure campaign, which this assassination seems to fit into. But the Syria withdrawal last month doesn't fit into it. And that's an indication that they... These people who are trying to develop a strategy who probably might not have even been in favor of uh, of Soleimani's execution can't count on the president and we shouldn't count on any consistency coming through. So, yeah, uh, there has there a, been a Trump administration effort, but the president isn't part of it and he has a really impressive capacity to screw it up and he'll probably do that again.
0: So the, the initial theatre where this is playing out in, is in Iraq, which um, you've been following for a long time, Julian. Uh, how do you see the, the situation in Iraq developing? I mean, one of the first things that happened was the Iraqi prime minister coming out and condemning this attack. He was apparently engaged in trying to build bridges between the US and Iran and and the Saudis and had invited Qasem Soleimani there so that he could deliver a message from the Saudis. So he was obviously shocked when uh, when Soleimani was killed. But um, what will happen to Iraq if the Iraqis go through with their threat to kick all American troops out?
3: Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, this is
0: going to be the, the prime example of the kind of strategic stupidity
3: of this move. Um, a move that, that was, was outwardly geared at kind of asserting American ascendancy, looks almost certain to result in the Americans being pushed out of Iraq and therefore losing their influence in that country and ceding that influence to the Iranians. So, so Qasem Soleimani, of course, in death now, is achieving what he really wanted to get, which is the Americans out of the region, out of Iraq, and, and, and Iraq more fully within their sphere. Now look, the Iraqi parliament have said have made an initial vote to kick the Americans out. That isn't—it's not a legal step. There's still a long way to see that implemented. But I think it's clear that the writing is on the wall about regarding American influence in Iraq. You saw Trump yesterday coming out saying that we will sanction Iraq to smithereens if they kick us out. You know, a, a step which is sure to ingratiate himself even further with with the Iraqi political and and, and popular class. But, you know, beyond that, I think that that there's a bunch of other effects that this could have. I mean, one is a a movement, a protest, a reform movement that has been bubbling up across Iraq in in recent months and and demanding structural changes to a system that is so clearly failing including pushing back against Iranian influence, is now likely to be squeezed aside in this broader kind of geopolitical battle, much as I would add as as domestic anti-Iranian government sentiment within Iran may now be swept aside by a kind of mobilization of, of nationalist support behind the system. You know, that's a downside to what we're seeing here. And then, you know, from a European perspective, I think one of the big concerns is that the Americans and, and the anti-ISIS coalition, who have a large presence in Iraq, who have been supporting the Iraqi government in continued operations, have immediately closed shop. I think as of yesterday or the day before that, there can going to be no more operations. They're effectively now only staying in Iraq in a force protection capacity. And as you see the US army potentially kicked out, as you see anti-US, potentially anti-Western pressure mounting, you know, the, the anti-ISIS coalition is, is going to be cut short, uh, potentially ended. And there's a lot of fear and a lot of concerns that, that you know, enough hasn't been done in terms of consolidating that mission um, and that ISIS could regroup and find new space. There are ramifications for what goes on in, in Syria. There are a lot of Iraq-centric interests for Europeans, for Westerners that go alongside this broader concern that the Americans
0: and the Iranians uh, might clash head to head right now. Jeremy, what does this mean for the future of NATO and its engagement with Iraq? Because, I mean, some people could say that actually, you know, so long as ISIS is being controlled by the Russians and the Iranians, being f- for the US to be out of Iraq is actually exactly what both Obama and Trump were trying to do. So this might accelerate their strategy.
2: I don't think they wanted to be leave to leave by being kicked out. Although uh, arguably that is also what happened in twenty twelve, twenty thirteen, when the. Um, uh, when Iraq refused to negotiate a status of forces agreement, which is why the u s left the last time, I think we have to understand that what what Julian was describing was a complex of interests in Iraq which have a big impact on Europe, they have a much smaller impact on the United States. Essentially, the United States is implicated in the Iraq problem because it started the war and because it's there. If the United States leaves Iraq, it will have a lot more difficulty becoming interested in the in the issues there. Um, and so it may well be the case that for better or for worse, this is a path out of Iraq for the United States and it will become, uh, somebody else's problem. And I think that this demonstrates that uh, in Washington, these issues, you know, they're important. They have political resonance, but they don't really have domestic political impacts at home, except in terms of the reputation of the statesmen. They're not, these aren't issues which actually touch people at home besides, you know, the troops actually being out there. And you see that in this weird thing that Julian described, which is that the current mission of the U.S. forces in Iraq is basically to protect themselves. Of course, they could do that much better from the United States. By not being there. Yeah. Uh, the, best, the best force protection you could possibly have is staying home. Uh, and so they will definitely be able to accomplish that mission better from uh, Texas. And so I think that you, you might see that President Trump will always be very attentive to his ego and very attentive to the idea that he wasn't forced to do anything. But it doesn't seem all that clear that he wants to stay in Iraq or that he really cares very much about it. So you could well imagine them being able to sort of construct a narrative where they simply leave.
0: What does this mean for, for Europeans, Ali? I mean, one of the big things which Europeans have been focused on was the Iran nuclear deal. As you said earlier on, that looks like uh, it's going to be weakened even further with the fifth set of measures um, to, to withdraw from it by Iran. Europeans obviously have suffered from ISIS attacks more than the US has in different European capitals. But what else is at stake now from a European perspective?
1: Well, look, Mark, I think we are sadly back in a position where there is a risk of military escalation on Europe's doorsteps. There was a fear of this happening, I think, back in May when the US reimposed, essentially, an oil embargo on Iran, and we had skirmishes on the the Strait of Hormuz. I think that since then, it's been periodic, you know, uh, essentially one or two month cooling periods before something inevitably went pop in the region. And now I I, I fear we're in a phase where this tit-for-tat escalation is becoming more and more severe between the US and Iran. And uh, frankly, the Europeans are left stuck in the middle with their troops on the ground potentially caught in the crossfire, you know, we've gone from six months ago, attacks against military installations, oil installations, drones to now the US killing one of the top Iranian state officials. So it has heated up fairly quickly. One of the things that I think is as much a problem for Tehran as it is for European capitals is what Jeremy was alluding to is there's really no knowing (laughs) what Trump wants on Iran there was this hope uh, back in September uh, with president macron's initiative that trump was interested in a genuine diplomatic process and now i think with this escalatory step from the united states any hope for a, a real breakthrough under the the trump administration or at least his his remainder of term in this term of office up to november ha- has really been quashed and so for for europeans i think that the ambitious you know macron plan that was at play is, is no longer realistic. The best that can be hoped for is that through mediation with Washington and Tehran, but also with other actors in the Middle East, like the United Arab Emirates, like Oman, like Iraq, or even Saudi Arabia, none of these regional countries want a a real flaming hot conflict on their doorsteps. That's an interest shared with Europe. And I think Europeans should capitalize on that to create at least longer cooling off periods uh between iran and the united states and a second area where i do think europeans have a a role to play is really finding a pathway to prevent further expansion of iran's nuclear program it's very interesting that iran has said it remains part of the deal it really was a potential option that iran could have withdrawn from the agreement in light of the killing of Soleimani and ratcheted up its enrichment and announced very high levels of enrichment. And I think the fact that it hasn't sends a very important signal that it is leaving the door open to some diplomacy with Europe. Saying that and setting out that landscape, I think the Europeans should be very calculated and careful in the types of statements they're issuing in the coming days. They should be focused on de-escalation rather than necessarily taking either side of this fight. And they need to find a middle path out that's a European way, that doesn't necessarily attach them to the US maximum pressure campaign, which could actually make things worse in the Middle East and for their interests than we have at the moment. So right now, I think one of the things that Europeans should really be cautioning Tehran is that, you know, in the inevitable response that Iran will have, I think there will be a military response. And the Europeans have to caution Iran that if that military response involves taking uh, lives of U.S. military personnel, it could very well risk a U.S. strike on Iranian territory. And I think that uh, the EU high representatives, Joseph Borrell's idea of actually inviting Iran, uh, the Iranian foreign minister to Brussels to have a, a more in-depth regional security dialogue will be a very important step forward and actually preserve the space for Europe to maintain its ties with Tehran and, and, and preserve a certain degree of influence in this very toxic mix.
0: But what, apart from calling for de-escalation and for everyone to be calm, <laughs> can Europeans actually do?
1: So look, I think that on, on the regional playing field, there is a overlap of interest with The current government of Iraq, which, although it remains very fragile and weak in Baghdad, has an interest to keep Iraq isolated from further attacks. So given the European uh, role as part of the coalition on the ground inside Iraq, I think there may be some sort of assistance that can be given to uh, Baghdad, whether it's on the security or the political field in the immediate term. And this is something that particularly the, the French government is currently focused on, is this issue of preserving Iraqi sovereignty and calling for that repeatedly and cautioning the Americans as well as the Iranians from further attacks on Iraqi soil. Secondly, again, as I mentioned, there is this ironic overlap of interests with now the Emiratis and the Saudis uh, in preventing further conflict. And Actually, the Emiratis and the Saudis in some ways probably have better links with the White House at the moment than certain European capitals do. And so trying to influence the United States towards some sort of a cooling down of this situation. And in my mind, if the United States is genuinely interested in a political track, there's a big question mark over that. There is still the option on the table to come out of this situation by signalling to Iran that there can be some sort of a creative economic easing of sanctions that could perhaps reset the escalation game back to zero in a way uh, for at least a longer period of time. And finally, I do think that the main role that the Europeans have in this game is how far they allow nuclear issue to escalate amidst all of this. That's perhaps the one area where Europe could actively do something. It's again, Iran now has the option to significantly ratchet up its nuclear program should it choose to do so. And in the meantime, if for example, Europe can, and this is I recognize an incredibly small, piecemeal step. But nevertheless, if Europe can, for example, operationalize this special purpose vehicle for trade with Iran, the INSEX mechanism. That is a small step that signals to Iran that Europe is still in the game when it comes to the JCPOA. And let's remember... Insects is still only meant to be for humanitarian trade for the foreseeable future. And so that doesn't place the Europeans in a heated clash uh, with the US. Then, you know, the Europeans are probably likely, if not Im- imminently, but in the coming week to consider triggering the so-called dispute resolution mechanism of the nuclear deal, which takes this agreement into a whole new chapter. And I think if they choose to do that, They really need to use this as an opportunity to actually find some sort of an interim arrangement with Iran that keeps certain caps on Iran's nuclear program, even though it it falls short of the original JCPOA.
0: So does everyone agree that this is basically a catastrophe that is going to make a war much more likely? Because there is a sort of alternative explanation for what's going on, which is that essentially before Trump took this step, there was a general consensus in all Middle Eastern capitals that Trump was not going to respond to any Iranian provocations, particularly after the attacks on Saudi Aramco and and the... uh, oil fields and various other things which had been done with impunity. Iran had a, a sense that um it was able to do whatever it wanted with total impunity and was therefore in danger of significantly overstepping and could potentially uh, have stumbled into a kind of war. With this, you know, at the very least could be seen as an attempt to to reestablish deterrence to show that there are red lines to what Iran is doing in the region. And obviously, simultaneously, if Iran does react in a kind of aggressive way, from an American perspective, does help to recreate a, a kind of Western coalition and to heal some of the differences between uh, Washington and and European capitals, which have been while the JCPOA was still alive. And if this is kind of finally kills the JCPOA, then, then it would mean that the, the sort of transatlantic unity was was restored. I think your struggle, Mark, to find buy-in for um
3: the sympathetic interpretation of what's happening. I mean, I think the, the, the Saudi and the Emirati response that, that Ellie talked about really says it all. I mean they were have long been the states most concerned by Iranian regional positioning and the aggressiveness of the likes of Soleimani. And yet today they are petrified Uh, that this is going to lead into something uncontrollable that is going to engulf the entire region. And I think part of that equation is probably their concern that actually a nuclear deal that that provided safeguards is likely to, to, to go out the window along with that picture of regional stability. I also find it hard to believe, even if some Europeans are now trying to align themselves or at least keep Trump on board to a certain extent, that they are going to be particularly happy repositioning themselves within a a, a transatlantic context that sees uh, the Middle East potentially engulfed by war and that that nuclear equation uh, rise to the fore again. So, you know, there are a bunch of people who are happy. They're sitting around Donald Trump. They're the type of people, I suspect, who see war with Iran as the only way of ultimately achieving what they want to in terms of regime change. Um, I think there are very few people who are looking at this as a means to actually advance core interests in terms of limiting, containing, constraining Iranian regional ambitions or nuclear ambitions.
2: I would also say let's, let's not make the mistake uh, we made when Donald Trump failed to respond to the Aramco. He's, we assumed that that represented a consistency. Uh, we assumed that uh, because he hadn't responded to that, that he was not going to respond to any Iranian provocations. Now we're essentially saying because he has authorized the assassination of Soleimani that he is going to respond to every Iranian provocation and escalate out of – and in fact, what we know about Donald Trump is that he has no such consistency, that his response on to the next provocation might be the exact opposite of the response to this one. And so I don't think we can assume that this will escalate out of, out of bounds. I think we might assume that, in fact, he will grow scared of this war. He's more scared of this war than the Saudis. He is certainly a lot more scared of it than his advisors, and he might push back on them.
0: I suppose the point I was trying to make, that rather than seeing this necessarily as, as a kind of path to war, what it could be about is about, regaining some credibility and unpredictability, which therefore keeps people guessing. And that's what deterrence is usually based on, is is a sense that you don't know, and therefore it, in, it introduces an element of risk which could actually end up having a, a kind of salutary effect on a lot of the regional actors' behaviour. And if it is forcing the Saudis and the, the Emiratis and others to now sue for peace instead of asking the US to bomb Tehran, which is what they've been doing for most of the last decade, that could be quite a good thing as well. No?
1: Can I come in here? I think if you're sitting on te- in Tehran, you don't necessarily view this action as an act of deterrence. So I think that the, it's going to be very tricky for Iran to get the response right because they 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 feel an absolute need now having been cornered to box back and and as I said I I do think they will across a different spectrum of of arenas but they also need to do it in a way that falls short of inviting an even bigger potential response from Trump while leaving the door open to diplomacy with either this president or a future U.S. president uh, potentially after the November elections. But I think the hardest part for Iran is because of Trump's inconsistencies and because there is no holistic strategy coming out, it's going to be very hard for them to get it right in terms of establishing their own deterrence against the United States or, in fact, any other actor like Israel carrying out a similar action in the future. And we know that at a time and place of its choosing, I think Iran will respond. As I said, I don't think the Supreme Leader of Iran is interested in inviting a a full-fledged conflict. But there is also another issue which we haven't alluded to is Iran has connections to a whole range of actors across the region some of them under command and control others not necessarily so and the united states is currently taking the position that like in iraq any action by any iranian allied groups against its interests will be the responsibility of iran so in a way this opens up a whole new field or potential miscalculation on either the Iranian side or groups allied to them to overstretch and, and, and respond in such a way to this attack that invites further, I think, retaliation from the US side. But I don't think we should either be, you know, we shouldn't be downplaying the significance of what this could all mean either. Yes, it could all blow over uh, Trump's mind. But for Tehran, this has been a very significant episode in their relationship with the United States.
0: But presumably, if his goal is to get out of the Middle East, the more he succeeds in that, the less Iran can actually punish him. Because most of the levers that Iran has are about, you know, putting pressure on American boots on the ground in different places. So if the boots leave, then so does Iranian leverage.
2: Yeah. So maybe Iran and the United States have the same goal here, which is both, they both want to get the United States out and they can both leave and declare and both declare victory. I think that would be great for everybody, I guess, except probably for Europeans and for Iraq. But I think that the fundamental point is that the president, even though he probably has a sort of overall sense that he'd like to be out, has no idea how to do it and has no plan for doing it and is subject to getting sucked back in when uh, leaving makes him look weak. And I think that this is what both Julian and Elliot were sort of emphasizing, which is that the president doesn't want to look weak, He, but he doesn't really have a plan for either regime change in Iran or for U.S. withdrawal from, from Iraq and from the Middle East more generally. So he's stuck sort of lashing out and then not responding and then saying he doesn't care and then lashing out again. And that that cycle is kind of likely to repeat. So it's easy to imagine, for example, that there is some sort of confusing Iranian attack on U.S. interests that comes through some proxy. And then the president's advisors come to him and say, okay, now we have to you know, restore deterrence and respond in this massive way. And he's confronted with this war that he doesn't want, and he simply refuses to do it. And so then we're back in the in the previous part of the cycle. And I think, you know, that's essentially where we're stuck. Because the U.S. doesn't have a plan, because it's a completely unpredictable actor, and because even the people who are capable of formulating a plan within the administration aren't able to get the president on board with one, it means that we we really don't have any idea what the U.S. reaction to any given Iranian action will be.
3: One thing that is intriguing, though, that we haven't talked about, I mean, Trump still wants negotiations. He still wants a deal, right? I mean, what, what was the tweet that he did the day after the attack? It's something, you know, Iran never won a war or never lost the negotiations. I mean, Which almost...
1: inaccurate, but yeah. You know, the, the, <laughs> it was inaccurate,
3: but it was, it was essentially this indirect call to Tehran to negotiate.
2: No, I think he's been calling for that for the whole time. And I, th- I think the Iranian domestic politics make this incredibly difficult. Ellie can speak more to that. But if tomorrow Rouhani said let's let's meet in Geneva and have a talk about this stuff, the president would show up.
1: But the thing is, I mean, Trump lives in a parallel universe where he thinks that taking, you know, saying I want to negotiate goes hand in hand with escalating militarily to this extent. Sure, I mean, he could say that, but that's not going to work with the Iranians. And I think the team of advisors around him don't necessarily want this to go down the diplomatic track either. And in Iran, uh, you could argue the same thing. Look, Rouhani, even after the Soleimani incident, has come out and said we will be open to negotiations with the United States as long as they come back to the nuclear deal. And that's the heart of where the the politics can begin again. But I don't think that the environment right now is conducive to that political track bar some very –
2: No, I'm sure that that's – I'm sure that that's right. I'm just making a sort of – almost a thought experiment point, which, and I think, you know, the Iranians, even though they have their own domestic politics, would be wise to take advantage of it. But but I agree with you, they probably won't, which is they could, you know, play the North Korean card. And they could, if they showed up in Geneva, they could negotiate a fake deal with the president, probably get 90% of what they want. They'd have to endure the spectacle of the president crowing over it. Uh, and saying it was a better deal than Obama's. But they would probably, on the ground, get almost everything that they want, and then they could simply walk away from having to deal with the United States in the region.
3: Soleimani makes that impossible, right? I mean, there needs to be a retribution before you can move towards that phase.
1: And i just leave with one final point. I think, you know, coming back to what Jeremy said, I do think Tehran made a mistake not to entertain and engage in direct talks with the Trump administration back in 2017. But I also think the Trump administration and President Trump himself made a mistake not to entertain the Macron initiative seriously in New York by providing some um, sanctions relief to Iran before a face-to-face meeting. And both sides could well have avoided this escalatory path from which I think now it's going to be very hard for any mediator to push them back into a direct um, negotiation.
0: So to sum it all up, we are back where we are at the end of most of our discussions on Iran, which is hoping that we can get to November 2020 without a war.
2: That is definitely the best plan any of us have come up with.
0: Basically, Europeans doing all they can in the interim to message in both Tehran and in Washington to encourage people not to overreact and to try and keep as much of the JCPOA alive in the interim. We normally end with a bookshelf segment, but we have been running for quite a long time already and more importantly than that ellie has written the ultimate op-ed on this subject which can be on all of our bookshelves we'll put up a link to her article on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast but for now from ellie garamaya julian barnes dacey jeremy shapiro and myself mark leonard it's goodbye The researcher of our podcast was Anna-Sophie Bollmann and our editor is Marlene Riedel.